日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へありがとうございます。Didn't care. He doesn't care. He just wants to check the box and say, okay, I talked about Nish- right. Nishino. Yeah, check.、Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. Overall, the bottom line is Nobunaga won and Katsuyori lost, and Nobunaga didn't have to worry about the Takeda anymore. And so. Yeah, they, and he, as a historian, it doesn't serve my purposes to look into it any deeper than right. that.、Yeah. Right. But I, I think that,、uh, you know, we've, as a. I don't want to say we as a profession, because I'm, I'm not a professional historian yet. But、um, I, I think as a, as a group, historians have moved past that. The problem is there's very few people, in English especially, who are looking at that level of detail when it comes to battlefields, especially in Japan. So, but that's one of the things that I think that it's unfortunate, and we need to do something about the fact that、uh, historians and archaeologists don't, don't talk enough. Um, and don't,、uh, you know, aren't, I, I don't want to say that they don't use each other's research, because obviously they, they, they do, but they should be doing that research together, is really the way it, it should work. And it, rather than, you know, the historian over here in the library reading, you know, texts and the archaeologist out there digging on the ground, I mean, they need to be collaborating. And, you know, sharing as they do the research rather than, You know, the historian, oh, okay, well, I'm reading these texts and、eh, I publish a book and then I'm done with it. And then the archaeologist reads that book and then maybe go, goes and does some research, you know, and, and the, the archaeologist goes and finds something and publishes it in an archaeology journal or something. And then,、uh, you know, some other historian comes along, sees that, and then uses it. I mean, there needs to be a closer collaboration, I think. Well, I feel like, too, now at this point with, with、uh, historians, at least in the sort of the Japanese studies area, they're, they're, they are starting to look at people, the populations, you know, rather than、right. the big man theory. And I think that's where it's probably most useful because, in a way, well, again, from outside archaeology, I, I get the impression that a lot of it is more general information on the time. What,、right. what, were they, what did they have? What did they wear? What were they doing? What, what, you know, what, what the remnants of, of the lives of the people who were there? 
So right. I think I think at the, in that aspect, I think it would be definitely useful. Well, and, and I think you know it's it's yeah it's certainly you know, useful for that. You know, there's obviously I mean there's the two extremes. There's the you know people like Sansom or, or you know even uh, Hall to an extent who look at the big picture and the uh, the, the political heavyweights, if you will, uh, and so forth. But then there's the the opposite side of of uh, the historian spectrum, you know, the, the kind of Marxist, uh, in the individual counted for nothing. It's, it's all grand movements of history and, uh, so on and so forth, which, you know, cares about the population and it cares about economic trends and, and so forth, but still doesn't really care about individuals right? per se. Uh, because, you know, the individual is nothing, these things would have happened regardless of whether Odin Nobunaga existed or not, or you know some nonsense like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think where archaeology is useful is it is it kind of defeats both of those extremes. And for the for somebody like 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 me who try like I try to look comprehensively at all levels because there's a they're all interconnected you know if you go back to gosh my blog post from like three years ago on on your blog uh where you look at the different levels of war the strategic operational and tactical right and the fact that um and i'm not going to explain that because people can go find it uh but uh, I'll, I'll link it up on the uh, on the blog post yeah but you know the fact that they're interrelated and and that that you know nothing you know, you can't act at one level without understanding the others and vice versa that, you know, they, they, uh, you, you can only build your strategy with understanding what you have at the operational and, and the tactical level because it limits your options and so on. So for, for someone like me, understand, because I want to understand commander's tactical decisions, you've got to not only understand like the big picture, what were they trying, what was Oda Nobunaga trying to do politically in Japan in 1575? Uh, well, obviously he, whatever he's going to do is going to try to fit that, that strategic goal. But at the same time, you've got to look at the individual soldiers that, that fought underneath Nobunaga and his, his subordinate commanders, because if you don't know what that individual gunner carrying an arquebus was capable of if you don't understand how you know the equipment that he had to carry and and how to you know how how that affected what he was able to do how far he could move how fast it you know he he was able to fire his weapon the ways that multiple uh gunners were used in conjunction with archers to create a, a rapid rate of fire as best as they could uh, while also maintaining accuracy and then having the archers cover the time that they weren't firing and so on and so forth. If you don't understand it at that level, then you have no idea how Nobunaga was able to accomplish his goals by applying you know, military force at the tactical and operational level. So it's, it's inter- all of it's interesting to me because – if if we were to dig up a you know a, a samurai encampment uh, that a couple ashigaru had you know stayed for a night or so and built a fire and you know maybe they dropped some stuff or or whatever that that we were found we could kind of 
piece that together through archaeology, that'd be fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. As much as it would be, you know, to to go through and excavate Azuchi and understand how Nobunaga as a, you know, supreme daimyo lived and, and so forth. So, you know, I really, I mean, that to me is the value of the archaeology uh, and the, the, uh, the ability to kind of look at, you know, the material remains of, of a place. And one of the things that, like, was very encouraging to me uh, that I should mention is because we've talked about it before and kind of written it off about Nagashino because, you know, as we've talked about, Nagashino is, is primarily fields now it's rice paddies right right it's been plowed over yeah it's many cultivated times. it's you know and of course the battle happened 438 years ago yes thank you so yeah so it, it's like in my non-archaeology archaeologically trained mind it's like oh well there's no way we'll find anything because if you know if there was anything to find it's been either buried or or dug up and, and moved long, long time ago. Well, talking with people at this conference, uh, the general consensus seems to be that actually, contrary to that understanding, that, that, that I'm completely wrong, basically, that cultivation actually provides a perfect setting for doing metal detecting and, and, uh, and other... Uh, archaeological things that they would do to kind of figure out where things were because it keeps the, the, the rather than more and more layers of soil being piled on and, and so it just kind of keeps going further and further down, it keeps it active and churned up. So w- we'd be more likely to find things in the, uh, in the, in the soil just through metal detecting then we would, you know, rather than having to go dig through multiple layers of uh, of strata, you know, of earth to find anything. And, and again, I, you know, I'm kind of rehashing secondhand discussions I had, but but uh, the people who actually go and dig stuff uh, for a living are like, yeah, that'd be a perfect place to go dig. Wow, that that would have never yeah, occurred I was to like, me. Really. So yeah, I mean, it was uh that that was that was cool to 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 hear and to be like okay well so it's not a you know because I looked at it and I was like well it's so cultivated I mean it'd be a lost cause yeah my my impression would have been that they're they're digging up and tossing dirt in all directions and no. just making a general mess of it but I guess uh I guess not no um no they they I mean you know of course things move and 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 so on and so forth but. One of the things I, I understood coming out of the conference was all of that stuff, you can figure it out. You can, even if it's cultivated, even if it's whatever, I mean, you can, you can sort through that to kind of get an idea of where things were and, and, and so on and so forth. One of, one of the interesting things was, was there, you know, there were a lot of presentations that talked about or there there were several very good ones but but many of them covered you know firearms and you know finding bullets or or musket balls or whatever cannonballs or whatever it may be on the battlefield and kind of doing analysis on that well 
again, not knowing anything about how this is done before, we've talked about it, and it's like, well, how do I know whether the thing has been fired or whether it, you know, got dropped or whether it, you know, hit someone? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was wondering. And then they they like crawled a hundred meters before they died. So, well. <laughs> It was fascinating to me to watch these presentations and learn that, yes, you can figure all that out from the, the musket balls themselves. Uh, one, of the, one of the presentations had, like, you know, they were going through the different musket balls that they'd found at a particular, particular site and had one that had the indent, like, a perfect indentation of a front incisor. So the bullet... The lead bullet, because lead's soft, right? It's, right. A, it's a relatively soft metal. So this bullet had hit someone in the tooth. Now, it had probably then gone out the back of his head, <laughs> but it hit the tooth and le- it left an impression of the tooth on the bullet. Um, so things like that, I mean, there, there are not only ways to, uh, you know, identify whether it had hit someone or whether it had hit impacted in the ground or something like that, all of which was, was great because it means that you can, you can identify, okay, this was a bullet that's been shot. So you know that, that this is an impact uh, as opposed to where somebody was shooting from, uh, which is important to know when you're trying to figure out positioning on the battlefield. But the other thing and I don't know I, – I doubt at this stage it's possible to do with Japanese guns at the time. But there was a, a, a one presentation uh, that was talking about – and I actually got um, the, the – uh, actually uh, Professor Lawrence Babbitt um, from uh, East Carolina University. Uh, and uh, I talked with him after, and then he later sent me his uh, uh, research from – you know, on how how they do uh, analysis of these of the, of these things that you know I now have and and will go back and 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 read and kind of get a better understanding of. But uh, he w- he was talking about it and and was they w- you know it was fascinating because they could identify the specific you know I mean we think about it today and there's a lot you know we think okay well because it's it's a modern gun you know you get the you, you watch like CSI Miami or something, right? And, uh, oh, well, they can tell exactly what type of gun it's fired from and blah, 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 blah. Right, right. Well, they could do that with weapons from the 1700s and stuff too, um, which I wouldn't have thought was possible uh, because it's, they're, just, they're not bullets the same. You know, it's a musket. It's a ball. How, right. how are you going to tell? Uh, but they, they can um, because of the diameter and because of, you know, uh, various things. Now, the problem is that that's a lot easier to do for, say, the 1700s, the late 1700s or the Civil War, uh, because let's say in a Civil War battle, you know, you're looking at maybe three different types of weapons. Um, and so, and you, you kind of know from like records and stuff where the weapons came from. So, you know, like the colonial, or I'm sorry, we're talking civil war. So, you know, the Confederate troops would have, uh, you know, weapons supplied by the French or the British or something, or out of a, you know, uh, 
weapons factory, this weapons factory in Alabama, let's say. I'm making stuff up, but just go with it. Sure. Uh, whereas, you knew, the Union troops would all have, you know, probably more standardized weapons coming out of, you know, factories in the north somewhere. And so you could you could identify those uh, those those rounds and what weapons they were fired from through through different means and comparisons and so on and so forth. I think that would be fascinating to do with a Jap with with a, you know in a Japanese context, trying to uh, like say you know we find a whole bunch of musket balls at Nagashino. And piecing back, okay, this musket ball was fired from a gun that was, uh, a, you know, that was that was built and assembled at, uh, you know, the the factory at uh, Kunitomo in Omi Province, mm. versus, you know, this gun over here was fired, uh, and it was, you know, it matches the signature of guns that were built in Sakai, or versus another one that was imported from Portugal. And I think that would tell us amazing things about how Nobunaga, in particular, if we're looking at Nagashino, but you know, if you look at other battles, how daimyo in general acquired and equipped their, you know, acquired guns and then equipped their forces. Right. So you know, we're like if you're if you're if you're looking at the Nagashino battlefield, if on the northern side, we're finding all musket balls that were fired from guns from Kunitomo. But on the southern side, we're finding all balls that were fired from guns from Sakai. Then does that mean that there was a unit on the northern side? And so that's why all, you know, because they were equipped like in some sort of standardized manner? Or, you know, so, so I mean, what does that mean? Or if you, um, you know, the flip side, if you find that there's no rhyme or reason to it, that you know, on the north side we're finding ball, you know, musket balls from Sakai, from Portugal, from Kunitomo, from Tanegashima, whatever, and the same thing on the southern side, and it's all just kind of scattered around, and nobody can tell, and, and blah 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 blah, then you know that hey, they just kind of got whatever guns they could and. Hey, dude, here's your gun. Don't ask where it came from, uh, and I hope you find the right, you know, musket ball size. Right. right. Uh, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that, like, as I'm listening to the to the different presentations, and you know, of course, they're looking at civil war, or revolutionary war, or battlefields in Europe, and I was the only one there that did anything with Asia. Um, so I think people were happy just because I wasn't another civil war presentation. Uh, not that there's but, anything wrong with the Civil War. Not that there's anything wrong with the Civil War, but but there were there were certain there there were certainly some people who who especially the uh, the group of folks from uh, Scotland, um, the uh, University of uh, Glasgow has a uh, a center for battlefield archaeology, uh, headed by uh, Dr. Tony Pollard and Dr. Ian Banks, uh, and I got to spend a, a long time talking with. Uh, uh, Dr. Pollard, who's a, a fantastic, fantastic person, uh, and kind of like the, uh, at least my impression, uh, is the rock star of the uh, battlefield archaeology, conflict archaeology world. He he did a fantastic presentation, which you wouldn't kind of imagine, but he he's starting a project 
on doing archaeology of the Falklands War, mm. which if people haven't heard of the Falklands War, uh, was you know between Britain, uh, you know the UK and Argentina in the early 1980s. And so yeah. you wouldn't really think about doing archaeology about something that happened in the 80s because it's within living memory. But as you know, uh, his his uh, his take on it was it was interesting. Uh, you know, twofold. A that uh, you know the reason he thought about doing it was because you know we're, we're at the point where uh, the last he had a picture of himself with the last World War One. Uh, veteran who died a couple years ago uh and our of course the world war ii generation is is rapidly you know becoming no more so his thought was rather than wait around until people who experienced it aren't are no longer around and then oh okay well digging stuff up is all we got why not go and do you know investigation of the physical site but with people who were there. Now that's the kind of thing that historians and archaeologists could get together on. Absolutely. And and so not only do you have the the archaeology aspect and the physical aspect of it, but you have eyewitness accounts, you have so oral history. Uh you have, you know, you know you you do that plus and this really kind of hit home for me as a uh, military member and a, as a as a you know veteran of uh, deployment to combat zone that you can actually use it as a way for people to kind of uh, come to grips with their experiences uh, you know in uh, especially uh, if if they're they're suffering from uh, you know PTSD or something like that now are we gonna go to Afghanistan and dig stuff up uh, probably not in the next couple of years, but probably not a good idea. Who who knows? Maybe thirty years from now, people can you know will will be in a position to do that. Who who, who knows? But um, I, I mean, it was really fascinating and, and and to just think of that as even a possibility. And he had he he had gotten actually you know Argentinian soldiers and British soldiers who had fought against each other like. Not just they were on the battlefield at the same time. Like literally, you know, one had taken the other prisoner mm. in the 80s and then were had gotten them back together in a, you know, and they were assisting him with looking at, you know, different things in the Falklands. And, and it was just it was fascinating. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, uh, kind of a digression there. But, yeah, d- just it, it was it was cool. Uh Sort of being the only Asian Asian uh, focused person there, but yeah, just just I, I mean I learned a lot about uh, about so many different things, uh, and, and there were you know so many people doing interesting things with whether it was uh, you know the musket balls or whether it was looking at uh, um, oh one more thing about the musket balls. The other thing is you they could you can do analysis of the metal the lead mm-hmm. in the musket balls to determine where the musket, where, where the, the iron ore, the, the lead or whatever it is. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not a metallurgist, but where, what mines that came from. Yeah, it makes, that makes sense. That's yeah, that's interesting. 
yeah, there was somebody who was studying an ex a Spanish expedition into like up from Mexico into uh, the uh, you know what's now the U.S. Southwest. And uh, they, oh yeah, they, yeah, I read the uh, description. Yeah, that was yeah, in, they in, found in New a, Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He they 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 um you know they dug up a battle site in in uh, New Mexico and uh, found the crossbow bolts and did you know studies on the metal in the crossbow bolts and and figured out what specific mines in Mexico that they had been uh, mined at. And so it's like. Oh, that's the coolest thing ever because, hey, if I found, you know, stuff at Nagashino, okay, well, here's a musket ball. Well, let's figure out where the uh, the metal for the bullets was mined and, and stuff. I mean, it's just really cool stuff that, you know, if if I had like three more lifetimes, I'd, I'd, I might be able to do something with, but um, – <laughs> Well, yeah, I just, like I said before the uh, podcast, I was I was jealous. I I was fascinated by almost every uh, thing that I read on the uh, on the website. Yeah, it it was it was it was it was awesome, and I I have to say, and I have to give credit to the group, at just the way that it was organized, and um and just the 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 whole everybody in general, because it was not. I, you know, and you, and you having been to different conferences before, you know, you, the, the way that they're standardly organized is you have panels, right? And and some are less organized than others. <laughs> some are less organized than others. But one of the big frustrations of going to an academic conference is invariably, invariably, there will be multiple panels that you want to go to scheduled at the same time. At the same time, yeah. There, it's always the case. And and so you'll be looking at it and you'll be like, oh, well, you know, you have to go through that 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 thought process of, well, if I stay for the first paper on this panel and listen to that, and then I leave and I jump over to this panel, hopefully they'll have gotten through the first paper, which I don't care about, and they'll be on the second paper, which I really want to hear. And yeah, you kind of have to play this game of of how do I see excuse me, how do I see the things that I want to see? Oh, and hear the ones that when I want to hear, and and the beautiful thing about this conference was that there were no panels. There was no, it was not, there was no separation in anything. It was just here's the itinerary. You're speaking at you know X time. They kept on schedule, but there was you know there was no conflict like that because it was all in the big, you know, in one big room. So it actually ended up being the largest group that I've ever spoken to at an academic conference. Oh, so they just did them uh, one after the other rather than like yeah, multiple it was at the same just, time? it was just one after the other. And, you know, there were, I mean, there were some that I didn't, that I did not see mostly because I, uh, it was on Thursday and I ducked out to go uh, do my own present, you know, to go. Uh, tighten up my own presentation and get it ready for the next day but yeah it was just it was that what i thought was really cool because you got to see everything and everybody got to see you too rather than you know i mean i've had i've had times where we're at conferences where you know there's somebody that i like you know an, a scholar or something or a, you know professor or whatever that you've read their stuff and you're like oh my gosh 
I really want, you know, I really hope they come to my presentation. <laughs> and then yep. they don't because there's another one that they're going to go to, whatever. And then you feel crushed. And, and this, I mean, everybody was there, uh, you know, to see it. I mean, it, it was funny. Dr. Dr. Ian Pollard came up to me afterwards. He was like, I don't run. I don't run for anybody, but I ran. I made sure that I was here on time to see your presentation. I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Good to hear. So, yeah, it, it was just it was a it was a different experience. It was a great experience. Um, I will I actually in two weeks will be at another conference. I'll be back at the uh, Society for Military History um, doing uh, another uh, presentation there. But, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll go back to the normal academic conference side of things. But it was a fantastic experience. I'm glad I got invited. I'm glad I was able to go. But uh, I think as far as my experience, that's, that's, that's kind of it. Although it should be said, too, that neither of us are archaeologists. So if anything was misrepresented, that, that is, uh, we, we take full responsibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Please don't hurt me, Dr. Bleed. Because <laughs> I know you're listening. Okay, well, I guess uh, we're, uh, we've pretty much covered what we wanted today, so I guess we will call that a podcast. Sounds good. All right. All right, see everyone next time. Mm, bye. Bye-bye. Okay, and that's it for part two of our discussion on the 2014 Fields of Conflict conference. Please feel free to send any comments along to samuraipodcast at gmail.com, particularly if there is a topic that you want us to talk about or a question that you want us to discuss. And also please support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher and by using our Amazon link that you can find at samuraipodcast.com. And as for samuraipodcast.com, you can also find all of our back episodes, all the way back to number one, back in 2011. And you can also find the various other ways that you can support the podcast by going to the Samurai Archives bookstore or the t-shirt shop. And so with that, we are done for this week and catch you next time.